Good morning. It's good to see you today. Um, boy, here about an hour and a half ago, those clouds were really ominous. Wasn't that something? Yeah, up, upstairs, we, we were just like, oh boy, and our power went out real briefly, but it shut the computers and PowerPoint and everything off, and, and uh, <laughs> kind of scrambled there for a while. We're glad you're here today and glad that the sky's lightened up and it looks like most of it is put, pushed through at this point. How many of you ever remember playing the game where you pass a story around the room, you tell one person, they tell the next person, that person tells someone else, and it kind of works its way around the room, and then by the end of it all, you know, it hardly resembles the story that was started. You know, it goes by a number of different names. I've heard it referred to as the telephone game, but uh, there's probably a half dozen other names that it's been called over the years. Well, we actually did that a number of years back at primetime on a Wednesday night. And, uh, and it was quite a while ago because um, <clears throat> I still remember the setting we were in, and it wasn't here because all there was here was an alfalfa field. And uh, so this is like 20-plus years ago, um, and, and I was going to try to make a point. And so I cooked up a story just I don't know. I'm going to read it for you. I have no idea where, where this came from. Um, but I told the first person this story in front of everybody. You know, we had sent like 14 other people outside the room. And I told the first person in front of everybody so they, everyone could hear the first version of the story. And then this person was to go out to another room and tell someone. And then that someone told the next person and eventually, when the 15th person knew the story, they were to come in and tell everybody the story. So we all could kind of do a comparison. So this was the original version of the story. Once upon a time, there was a man named Rick. He was driving in his red pickup down 435, and that's when he saw her, the woman of his dreams. She was wearing a yellow dress, fixing a flat tire on her blue car. He stopped and helped her. Her name was Cindy, and she had freckles. Afterwards, she invited him over for coffee. A year and a half later, they got married. Today, they live in Shawnee and have three children and a dog named Lucky. Okay, I have no idea where, where that came from. But anyway, that was the first version of the story. And so then after several minutes, and I did some additional teaching during that time, but after it had gotten transmitted through all these various people, the last person came in, and I handed them the mic to be able to share with the entire group. And what they shared was only one sentence long. They referenced a man and a woman who had a truck. And that was it. That was the story. After switching hands 15 times, that's what that uh, beautiful version of a story that I originated, that's what it ended up sounding like. It just wasn't much of a story, you know, at all at the very end. Well, you see, this is what people claim has happened to the Bible. They claim that the Bible, you know, its first version isn't what we see today. Because it has been handed down so many times through so many different people that it is a far cry from resembling what it said originally. And you know what? If there is any basis of truth to that whatsoever, then we're all in a whole heap of trouble. You know, as far as being Christians, followers of Christ, coming and spending time together like this on Sunday morning. Because saving faith is based on historical fact. And if there never was a person named Jesus to begin with, and that's just something that was cooked up along the way, then what exactly are we basing our faith in? Or if this person named Jesus really did exist, but his bones are turning to dust in some tomb somewhere because the resurrection never, ever took place, 
then where do we find any victory in our beliefs? See, it's, it's our faith as believers, it is based in historical fact. And so we're going to talk about this. Um, there's value in covering it. There can be immediate value for some of you that if you're struggling with this yourself as far as the historical accuracy of the Bible, then what we're going to talk about today should be beneficial for you. But even if you don't have any doubts in regards to the reliability of the Bible, what we're going to be talking about still has value to you as far as witnessing goes because if you witness, if you share your faith with others as all of us should be doing, invariably... You you're going to come up against people that have questions that are going to throw your direction. And stuff like this that we're going to talk about today uh, can help equip you in answering some of those questions. Here's what the Bible says. I think we looked at this two Sundays ago. 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect. So as followers of Christ, we are to be equipped and ready, on the ready, to be able to answer questions when people throw our direction. Now, that doesn't mean that you're always going to have an answer. There's nothing wrong with telling someone, you know what, I can't really answer that question, but let me get back with you and do some digging of your own and talk to some people you respect and, and then get back with them. So, you know, you don't try to bluff your way through it when someone asks you a hard question, but, but this is part of the value of having uh, been exposed to some of the stuff that I'm going to expose you to here today. I don't expect you to remember all of this that we're going to be talking about, um, but hopefully it'll whet your appetite so you'll want to dive into it and study it a little further yourself. This all is a part of the broad subject of apologetics, the study of apologetics. As a matter of fact, in these nine messages that we're doing in our present series, a number of these do fall underneath the umbrella of apologetics. And so whether or not these are issues that you struggle with, you undoubtedly know people who are. This is a great series. You still got six more Sundays. A great series to invite some of your doubting friends or unbelieving friends to invite them to come to church, you know, with you. So this study of apologetics, it's relatively a, a new study um, uh, as far as uh, different studies go, it's about 175 years old, maybe 200 years old and all. It wasn't a big thing uh, that people talked a great deal about before, but in the last 175 years, it has become uh, more and more uh, important and serves an important role. Uh, in fact, the very first book that I bought outside of a Bible uh, this this is actual an actual picture of the cover of the one that I got back in 1978 or 1979. You know, right after I became a Christian, um, I was struggling as I shared in a recent Sunday. You know, with some of this, and and I bought Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Josh had set out to disprove Christianity. He was an unbeliever, an atheist by his own uh, description. And he knew that if he could disprove the resurrection of Jesus, then all of Christianity would collapse like um, a house of cards. And so that's what he did. He started researching in order to disprove the resurrection of Christ. And the more interviews he did and the more digging that he did, eventually uh, he gave his life to Christ. And he shares his testimony uh, as well in some of his books um, about how he became a believer. And he has spent the last several decades of his life, you know, speaking especially to college students about evidences of the Christian faith. This was the very first book that he wrote, uh, which was a, a 180, you know, from what he was thinking he, his first book was going to be. Uh, he entitles it Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and it definitely... Um, uh, demanded that he make a verdict that he embraced Christ and Christianity and has been a faithful follower of Christ for decades since that time. 
we're going we're to talk about um, the claim that is made by some today that the way the Bible reads today is a far cry from the way that it read a thousand years ago or 2,000 years ago. And in order to really refute that, we need to talk about ancient manuscripts. Okay, so that's what we're going to dive into here. For the longest time, one of the things that critics kept pointing out is that there weren't many ancient Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament. Uh, you may know the Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek originally. But uh, the problem was when it came to ancient manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament, there just weren't a great deal of those. And the truth is, there are a variety of reasons that contribute to that. One is that for hundreds of years, you know, ancient scriptures were written on something called papyrus. And papyrus is extremely brittle, especially with age and with handling. The more you handle it, the more the edges break and it can fade and, and all of this. And so that goes a long way in explaining why there aren't a whole great deal uh, a big number of, of ancient Hebrew manuscripts. Another thing that plays into it is that Israel was subject to um, war numerous times over the centuries. Historians record that Jerusalem, for example, was conquered some 47 times between 1800 B.C. and 1948. 1800 B.C. and the year 1948. Some 47 times it was conquered. That doesn't even take into account the battles that it wasn't conquered in. But you stop and you think about the fires and the destruction and all that would have been a part of many or maybe even most of those. And you think about some of the valuable documents and stuff that would have been lost in the middle of all of that. Another reason for the shortage of Hebrew manuscripts is that when... When these Hebrew biblical manuscripts became tattered and torn and faded, then the standard operating procedure was that they would make a copy or two of that and then they would destroy it. Or they would have a, a ceremonial burial of it. And that kind of seems a little bit self-defeating, that why, why would you do that to these valuable things? But you see, they felt that these things were sacred, and it reflected badly on God for them to be tattered and torn and faded and with, you know, the oils of your hands and stuff like that over time, you know, building up. And so they would make a copy, and then they would be intentional in destroying it. In fact, the shortage of Hebrew manuscripts was so extreme that for hundreds of years, the oldest Hebrew manuscript that was in possession is what was called the Masoretic Text, and it dated 900 A.D. That's A.D., after the time of Christ. That was the oldest. Now, the, the Old Testament was written before the time of Christ. But this was the oldest for the longest time. So let's kind of gain an appreciation for the number of years that had passed since the last part of the Old Testament was written. The last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And it was the last one to be written. And it was written approximately 400 B.C. And so if you look at that, the last part, the newest part of the Old Testament written 400 B.C., the oldest Hebrew manuscript that we had for a long, long time was the Masoretic Text. That's a gap of 1,300 years. That's a pretty big gap. And so you can understand why the critics were having a heyday with that. They were all over that and saying a lot of stuff can happen in 1,300 years. And that's why this isn't reliable. But then something happened. It has been... It has been referred to as the archaeological discovery of the 20th century, the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, 1948, right in that time, a Bedouin shepherd had misplaced a couple of his sheep. 
This was down about seven miles south of Jericho, just on the west side of the Dead Sea. He had misplaced a couple of his sheep, and he was trying to find them. That's a pretty rugged area you see in the picture on the right, and it's got uh, many caves in that terrain. And the shepherd, he was throwing stones into uh, some of these caves so as not to have to crawl up there himself. And he thought maybe he could spook the sheep and get them to make a sound or come out the entrance, and that way he would know where they were. Well, one of the caves that he threw a stone into, he, he heard something break, the breaking of pottery. And that is what was contained in about a dozen of these caves is there was a bunch of clay jars like the one, the picture on the left on the screen. And uh, as a matter of fact, they, when the authorities began investigating this further, they ended up finding out that there were some 600 manuscripts that were found in these clay jars. I mean, some of the jars had already bro broken and the manuscripts were deteriorating in the soil. You know, as dry of a climate and everything, I mean, still, a lot of time had passed because this all was dated at right around 125 B.C., 150 B.C., right in that area. A Jewish religious sect uh, dating back to that time had hidden... Uh, their entire library in 12 to 14 different caves because of Roman occupation. And they were afraid that it was going to be taken. Not all of that was scripture, but a huge portion of it was scripture. And so all of a sudden now what we have is we have a thousand year gap that has been bridged just like this. Whereas the oldest Hebrew manuscript was the Masoretic text, 900. Now they had Hebrew manuscripts that looked like this and that looked like this. As a matter of fact, every book of the Old Testament is represented in what was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls with one exception, and that is the book of Esther. There's nothing about Esther that was found in those caves. But otherwise, every, every one of the, the other 38 uh, Old Testament books is found. And in some cases, like Isaiah, you have a, a multiple entire scrolls of, of his book that is found there. And so it was pretty amazing. A thousand-year gap that was bridged just like that. And so everyone was kind of sitting on the edge of their seat when the Masoretic text would be compared to these now being referred to as Dead Sea Scrolls. And what they ended up discovering is that there is 99.5% accuracy as far as them reading the same. A few spelling variations. Once in a while, there was a word missing. But by and large, 99.5%. And so this criticism that had been thrown toward believers for such a long time that you can't trust anything the Old Testament says because, you know, there were um, hundreds and hundreds of years that passed uh, that it could have changed in incredible ways. The reality is it didn't change, and the Dead Sea Scrolls helped support that. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls do not, even though they date back to about 125 or 150 B.C., they do not represent the oldest of the Hebrew manuscripts. The oldest was something that was found in a good year. It was found in 1979. Rusty, you agree? 1979 was a good year, right? Some of the brightest Americans were born in, or not born, graduated high school in 1979. That's right. And uh, Mike, you agree with that too, don't you? So, uh, but anyway, this discovery, this discovery was made uh, there in the, the Hinnon Valley of Jerusalem. And what they did was they found nine burial caves that had been carved into the rock. And in one of these burial caves, they found something, you know, um, among some of the ruins that were in there. It was basically a, some type of a necklace that had two tiny scrolls 
on it. And you see that in the top left of the, the image that is on the screen. And, of course, it was all caked over and everything because it was so old. It ends up being dated 2,600 years old. That's the way they dated this, you know, and, and it's been verified um, by various sources since that time, 1979. Uh, 2,600. Hundred years, so they ended up uh, being able to unroll these tiny scrolls. They had to use a combination of salt and acid solution, you know, to do that. And when they unrolled them, you see the bottom left picture. That those that's actually a picture of the two scrolls, and each one represents about an inch wide and six inches long. So they were very small. But on the image that's on the right side, you see the little scratch marks. And all in the silver that's Hebrew lettering and what does that contain it includes that passage of scripture that is in the middle of the slide numbers chapter 6 verses 24 to 26 the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace you know it's actually kind of interesting this morning when uh, I was eating my breakfast, I turned the TV on and thought maybe, well, maybe I'll listen to a little Joel Olstein or something this morning and learn how to smile in the middle of a sermon. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, um, actually, I, f I found something I'd never seen on there before. They're, they, they call him the Jesus Rabbi. He's, he's a guy, and some of you maybe have seen this before, but he's a Messianic Jew. And he's wearing all the Jewish, you know, rabbi garb and all. And, and, uh, um, and he closed out his program by saying that prayer right there. You know, and I thought, isn't that, that cool? Um, but that scripture was found on these tiny scrolls dating way back 2,600 years ago, which means about 600 B.C., which means... This was written and put in that tomb while Old Testament scriptures were still in the process of being written because Malachi wasn't until 400 B.C. that it was written. And so the Old Testament wasn't even completed yet, you know, when this was originally written, which is really a cool thought, you know, when, when you kind of think through that a little bit. So, uh, so anyway, that's the oldest uh, portion of scripture uh, to date that has been discovered. I contacted my Old Testament um, history professor because even though that was found in 1979 and I went to Bible college 79 to 84, this wasn't talked about there because they had to kind of jump through a few hoops to verify uh, the authenticity of uh, this particular discovery. And so it wasn't until like the mid-80s that I even found out about this. And so the first thing that I did was I contacted my Old Testament professor, his name and some of you that knew um, Ozark uh, Christian College, you know, back in that time, the name uh, Wilbur, Wilbur Fields should ring a bell to you. And Wilbur Fields, Colette and I had him in Old Testament history uh, seven mornings a week at 7 a.m. It's a required freshman class. And, uh, uh, you know, back in those days, you didn't need to drink coffee. You just need to go sit in on Wilbur's class. And, boy, Wilbur, he was an excited Old Testament history guy. And, anyway, I called him, and I was reminded of just how, how excited he is about all things relating to Scripture. And he goes, oh, yes, you know, and I'm not even going to try to imitate him. Rex, you could do a better job imitating Wilbur. But uh, um, he said, oh, yes, I'm well familiar with that. And I was like, well, give me the lowdown on this. I mean, is this something I can talk about in a sermon? I mean, do you have some degree of confidence? He said, absolutely. He said, everybody should know about this. And he said he had the opportunity to pour over this. He had multiple pictures, close-up images and all. And what he did is he took the common Hebrew Bible and he compared it side by side, you know, with this. And he said the only difference he could find was one letter, one letter was different, and it had nothing to do with changing the meaning 
of uh, those three verses. So he was all pumped up, and he said, tell everyone about this because it's big news. Now, let's talk a little bit about the New Testament, New Testament manuscripts. New Testament was written, you know, approximately 45 A.D. up till about 95 A.D., the latter half of the first century. How many, how many manuscripts do you think we have? Copies, copies of copies, and copies of copies of copies, you know, of, of uh, some of these writings. You think we got 40 or 50? or 100 maybe, or 150. The reality of the matter is people that study this, you know, uh, uh, to a much greater degree than what I have, say that we have 6,400 manuscripts of the New Testament. And that's not even counting fragments. If you want to include fragments into the count, then you're over 24,000. That's a pretty big number. And now we don't have New Testament, the the autographs, the originals, you know, of the 27 books of the New Testament. We don't have the originals. But among what we do have in in that 6,400 number, we have some that date back within 30 years of the original. For example, there is a portion of John chapter 18 that uh, dates back to 125 A.D. And the Gospel of John was written right around 90 to 95 A.D. So we're right at that 30-year mark. There is also um, a small portion of Matthew chapter 26. Now, Matthew's Gospel was written earlier in the first century. And so this fragment dates back to 90 A.D., which is right at 30 years of when Matthew's gospel was written. Now, you stop and you make a little bit of a comparison here with uh, some, some uh, ancient people like Plato and one of his students, Aristotle. You, you, you look at some of their writings, and no one doubts the authenticity of the writings that we have today of Plato and Aristotle, even though there's only 12 existing copies, only 12, but nobody doubts that. But yet when you look at the New Testament, we have tens of thousands, you know, of, of complete or partial in the form of fragments, um, uh, portions of the New Testament. And that's not even taking into account what are called the early church fathers, the, right, the disciples of the disciples or the disciples of the disciples of the original disciples. People that wrote in the second century, in the third century, and some, again, who studied this a lot greater than I have, you know, have said that you you could uh, rebuild the entire New Testament just on the quotes of the early church fathers. So we're not even delving into any of that. We're just talking about manuscripts here. And part of the big thing that makes a difference in all of this is the work of scribes. Part of what's at play here is that they didn't have Xerox copiers back in that time. And Gutenberg didn't come along and and, uh, invent the printing press until 1456 A.D., And so there was centuries of time with the New Testament that it was all copied by hand. And there was a much greater uh, stretch of time with the Old Testament that it was copied by hand. All those centuries. And, And that was accomplished through scribes. People have often jumped to the conclusion that scribes were careless in their work, accusing them of being haphazard in the way that they went about copying scripture but quickly jumping to that particular opinion or view makes it rather obvious that people haven't done their homework as far as reading about the work of scribes biblical scribes and how serious they took their work scribes were known to be meticulous about their work they had a host of rules that they had to follow. So if you're if you're envisioning a scribe as being someone that held down a daytime job and then they would come home from their daytime job and they would take a shower and then go out in the yard and play a little soccer with their son until it was time to come in and eat 
And then when they put their children to bed, they would sit down hurriedly and try to spend 45 minutes or an hour copying scripture. Then the next day they'd go back to their job. And if that's the, the, the way you're envisioning uh, scribes and how they operated, um, that's not it at all. I, this was a profession. This was something they wholeheartedly dedicated themselves. When they sat down to work, they were in full Jewish attire. Okay, so, so I mean, it was a very formal thing that they were engaging in. The ink was always to be in black. No other color was acceptable. No letter or word was to ever be written from memory. Now, that's significant for more than one reason. And one of the reasons is that, that Jewish children, um, they, uh, they memorized large portions of Scripture because, you know, they didn't have smartphones with the Bible on it. They, they didn't have access, you know, to this like you and I do. And, and so they would memorize, you know, large portions. And then also on top of that, the scribes, I mean, this is what they were doing every day. They were copying Scripture. And so that was reinforcing it. And so it would have been real easy for them to, um, to have just been copying down based on memory as much as anything else, at least their favorite parts. But it was a solid rule that they could not write down a word or even a letter without looking at the source that they were using, and they had to do it that way. They also had particular rules regarding certain books of the Bible. For example, this one may sound a little bit strange, but uh, uh, the fifth book of Moses the rule was any scribe that was copying that book is that the last line had to terminate with a full line of Hebrew, you know, writing, letters, and everything. If, if you kind of dip down to that final line and only had two or three words and, and so you weren't able to complete the line, then that was not accepted, that, that particular copy of Moses's book was not accepted. It had to com be completed to, to the entirety of a full line. And so they had some particular uh, rules like that that they were following. Their columns uh, had to be a specific size. There had to be just enough space in between each consonant that um, the, the space of a hair or a thread could intervene. Um, they could not uh, start writing the name of God with a freshly dipped pen, you know, dipped in ink. You could not write the name of God because um, God's name is sacred, is holy. And having a blob of ink there when you're writing his name, uh, no, you do not do that. So, so that was the standard rule. There were additional rules for the Masoretic scribes. Remember the Masoretic text that I talked about? Um, through the early centuries after the time of Christ, the Masoretic scribes, I mean, they ratcheted it up even more. And some of their um, rules and safeguards that they created just to prevent any kind of uh, scri scribal slip-ups uh, is, is really detailed stuff. For example, they counted the words. So in whatever book it was that they were copying, they knew exactly how many words, you know, made up that book. And so they double-checked their work. And if there was supposed to be such and such as far as numbers of words, and then it was all counted up, and oops, nope, it's too off then that copy was not accepted, you know, because there was an error in it. And so they would have started over on it. Not only did they know exactly how many words were in each book of the Bible, but they knew what the middle word was of each book. They knew what the middle letter was of each book of Scripture. They counted the times a certain Hebrew letter appeared in a book. So, like, say you're copying the longest word-for-word -word book in the Bible is the book of Jeremiah. And um, so they, they would know exactly how many times a certain Hebrew letter appeared in the book of Jeremiah. So that was another way that they could check their work or someone else could check their work to make sure that they had done it accurately. 
from our perspective, all of this stuff really sounds uh, like pretty trivial uh, stuff. But yet, it's because of that that we have added confidence in knowing the precision that went into the transmission of Scripture from one century to the next century. You see, they viewed it as being sacred. It wasn't just a book. It wasn't just writing. This was from God. This was sacred. And that's why they had so many safeguards. So don't picture people who are sitting down and hurriedly scribbling out a copy of Scripture. This helps explain why, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, that when they compared it with the most recent of Hebrew manuscripts, which was the Masoretic text, a thousand years later, they found that it was 99.5% the same, with just some minor spelling variations. Let me talk about one more thing you know, on this. We're going to kind of broaden the subject a little bit because everything that I've talked about right now is like uh, subcategories of archaeology. But let me just say a few things about archaeology as a whole. If you research it, you'll find that biblical archaeology emerged as a relatively new science sometime toward uh, the latter part of the 19th century. But since that time, it's gone all gangbusters. I mean, it's, it's really uh, gained lots and lots of momentum. Since that time, the latter part of the 19th century, for example, there's uh, like 40 kings that are listed in the Old Testament. Archaeologists have found inscriptions in some of these uh, um, ancient places that they've had these archaeological digs um, for 40 kings, you know, in, in verifying that, yeah, they really did exist. And, and one of the, if you will, black eyes on all of this is that for the longest time, David wasn't represented in that list. Archaeologists had never verified the existence of a king named David, the most loved of all the king, kings of Israel. But yet they never found him until, and this is during many of us, our lifetimes, until 1993, among the ruins of a northern Israeli town, a monument was found with the inscription on it, House of David. And since that time, it's been verified by other sources that have been found as well. In recent years, archaeologists have discovered the ancient uh, ruins of a tiny little place called Ai. If you remember the book of Joshua, after they went and defeated Jericho, you know, there, just over the hill, there was this podunk little town called Ai, and Joshua and the people thought, well, we just need to send a small number over there and snuff them out real easy, and they got routed, you know, and it was all because of Achan, remember that whole thing, he was stealing some of the the loot uh, that they got at Jericho and, and God had to teach them all a very valuable lesson at that time. Well, anyway, AI ends up being destroyed and AI was pretty much just wiped off the face of the planet. Nobody knew where AI was. They knew where it should have been, but they couldn't find anything there. And then it was in more recent years, again, during the lifetime of many of us in this room, that uh, they started doing a, a dig in a particular site that my Old Testament professor, Wilbur Fields, was able to spend several summers going over and working at. And uh, again, you know, working over in that kind of a hot climate and everything. But yet he would come back in the fall and, man, he was pumped up from his work. And it's amazing how excited a guy can be working in dirt all the time in the hot sun. But uh, sure enough, they end up figuring out where AI is, and they find the ruins. You read in a portion of uh, the New Testament where Paul goes to Athens. Remember, he saw all those idols all over the place. He found this one altar that had an inscription on it that said, To an unknown God. And it almost sounds like a tongue-in-cheek kind of reference, like they wanted to cover every base and just in case, you know. And it almost sounds made up, you know, an altar to an unknown God. Well, archaeologists have found in places like Pergamos, 
um, an actual altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Since they found that one at a later time, they found one in Rome that had the inscription on it to an unknown God. So that actually was a thing that people were doing back in that era of time in history. Abraham, way back in the book of Genesis, Abraham's hometown is a place called Ur, which Ur was a very prominent place up kind of like in Iraq, up in that area. And it's kind of a funny place just because of the name Ur, U-R is how you spell it. And uh, it was thought to be fictitious for a long time because nobody knew exactly where Ur was. Um, but not only did they end up finding it, but in one of the ancient um, digs in one of those ancient locations, they found a column with the inscription on it, Abram. And if you remember the story in Genesis, originally what was Abraham's name? Abram. And God changed his name. In Daniel chapter 5, it talks about the king of Babylon being Belshazzar. That Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. For hundreds of years, the critics would jump all over this because there was no Babylonian historians that had any evidence that a Belshazzar even existed. Even Greek historians had no evidence that there ever was such a guy, Belshazzar. But then in 1956, a clay tablet ended up being discovered. And on the clay tablet, it mentioned who Nebuchadnezzar's successor was. Some king, and I didn't even write it down, his name started with an N. Um, and he only stayed there in Babylon for two or three years. And then he decided to go to Arabia. And, but in his absence, he appointed his son to be king in his place. Guess what his son's name was? Belshazzar. And so, again, the Bible was verified when everything else was seeming to indicate the Bible was incorrect. But archaeology, you know, verified the accuracy. One of the biggest discoveries of the 20th century, and perhaps it would have been the biggest discovery of the 20th century had the Dead Sea Scrolls not been found, uh, involves the Hittite Empire. Hittite, H-I-T-T-I-T-E. There's like 61 verses that reference the Hittite people, but there was absolutely no evidence outside the Bible that such a people ever existed, that there ever was a kingdom, you know, named that. But then at the beginning of the 20th century in 1906 in Turkey, they found the ruins of a city. And as they began uncovering those ruins and read of references to the Hittites, they soon discovered 40 or more than 40 other cities that were all a part of this empire. And in fact, as they studied this, they discovered that the Hittite empire had existed for 600 years in history, which is quite a length of time for any kingdom to have lasted that long. So this was an extremely prominent uh, ancient kingdom. And nowadays, even, even though at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, there was no such thing as the Hittites. And people that believe that based on the Bible were thought as being foolish. But the funny thing is now, you can go to a number of different colleges here in America and you can get degrees in Hittite studies today. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to, you could take language courses to learn how to speak the Hittite language. You know, they have found so much about that. But, you know, we can talk about Hezekiah's tunnel. We can talk about the pool of Siloam. We can talk about numerous other sites in and around Jerusalem that have been uncovered. Um, I was at Jerusalem here three, three or four years ago. I lose track of time. And there's all kinds of digs going on around there. I think that's kind of a perpetual thing that that is going on, and they're always discovering new stuff. In 1974, this was quite a ways away from Jerusalem. This was way up in northern Syria. In 1974, they found evidence of the Ebla kingdom, and they actually found the Ebla kingdom's library, which sounds kind of weird, but there were 17,000 tablets 
that were uncovered in one location. And what makes that especially significant, even though it was way up north from what we typically think of as being the Bible lands, is that on one of those tablets, the five cities of the plain are listed in exactly the same order that they're found in Genesis chapter 14. Two of those being Sodom and Gomorrah, who were always thought of as being mythological. And now they know otherwise based on on what was found um, in 1974. Now, does all this prove the Bible? No. But it sure does build a strong case for the credibility and the the historicity of what is found in the pages of the Bible. It builds a strong case for that. And we're just scratching the surface on this. There's a whole lot more. But like I said at the beginning of the message, as much as anything, my hope was just to whet your appetite to dive into this and to study more. Because I know it shored up my faith, you know, in the early days of my walk with Christ. And I think it will have the same effect, you know, with you. Now, there's one last um, thing I want to talk about. Everything I've talked about thus far has kind of been external evidence found outside the Bible that has verified the Bible. I want to give you one last illustration in closing of internal evidence in the form of messianic prophecies. We know the Old Testament was written before the New Testament, right? We know that because of the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls and also the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which dates back to 200, 250 B.C. So we know the Old Testament clearly was written before the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of what we refer to as being messianic prophecies. Things like this. He'll he'll be called Emmanuel, born of a virgin, teach in parables, He'll work miracles. The Spirit of God will rest on him. He'll be from the tribe of Judah. He'll be buried with the rich. His hands and feet will be pierced. He will be mocked and insulted. They will divide up his garments. Okay, so those are all some of the messianic prophecies that are found in the Old Testament. Well, there's this fella. His name is Peter Stoner. Peter Stoner was at the time chairman of the departments of mathematics and astronomy in Pasadena. He was a Christian and he wrote a book, well, the book that he's remembered best for is the one entitled Science Speaks. And Peter Stoner in this book, what he did was that applying um, the whole thing about mathematical odds and Jesus fulfilling eight of these messianic prophecies, he came up with a formula of how unlikely that was. And he used 600 of his students to help him in this study. These were the eight messianic prophecies. Uh, The one dealing with how Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, The one about being preceded by a messenger, which of course was John the Baptist. The one about entering Jerusalem on a donkey, which we think of triumphal entry. The one about being betrayed by a close friend, Judas Iscariot, 30 pieces of silver, the silver being used for the potter. Remember, it was thrown back, you know, in and and was used by the potter's field. Um, That he would be silent before his accusers, that he would die with thieves. Okay, those eight prophecies Peter Stoner picked and applying the science of probability, he ended up coming up with this. The likelihood of those eight messianic prophecies being fulfilled in one person is one in 10 to the 17th power. What that 10 to the 17th power is, that is 100 quadrillion. One in 100 quadrillion. That still doesn't help any because we don't, we don't think in the, that large in numbers. We can't wrap our mind around that. And so what Peter Stoner did was he broke this down even a step further so we could visualize it. He said, that number, think of it like this. You take the state of Texas and you fill Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, the entire state. One of the silver dollars you've put a big X on and you throw it or hide it or whatever. 
somewhere in the state of Texas. And now you take someone and blindfold them and nudge them out into the state and encourage them to walk however long they want to walk, but bend over only one time and pick up one coin. The likelihood of them picking up the coin with the X is one in 10 to the 17th power. And so that's part of what Peter Stoner is saying is that this isn't an accident. And that's only eight. And there are dozens and dozens of messianic prophecies. And uh, so, so his whole point is just, just that, you know, the internal evidence of the Bible has a very loud and clear message if we'll just open our ears and open our eyes to hear it and to see it. We're going to have our time of communion this morning, and I want to encourage you to do a couple of things. Definitely use this time to reflect on what it is that Jesus has done. As you take the bread and you eat it, think about his body. When you take the cup and drink it, think of, think of his blood. Think of the sacrifice that he made on your behalf. And this is the time to, to just prayerfully reflect on that. But I also want to encourage you to just spend a moment just thanking God for preserving his word. Because there have been countless people over the centuries that have tried to outlaw this, that have tried to burn it and destroy it, that have tried to, to eliminate it, period. But yet here it is today. We still have it. In fact, we have greater confidence in it today than we had 100 years ago or we did 200 years ago or 500 years ago because so many of these discoveries that are being made. Spend a little bit of time just thanking God for the reassurance, the bonus reassurance that he has provided through this whole thing called archaeology. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for today. We're grateful for the opportunity to be able to gather as a family of believers and just to be reminded of our faith and your love and what you've done on our behalf through Christ. And Father, we celebrate that together as a family of believers. And we also collectively thank you for preserving your word all this time, even though so many we're so determined to destroy it and to eliminate it. Thank you, Lord. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.